Hi, it's Guy here and this is Creative Forces. This episode I talked to Nick Johnson. Now Nick is a pioneer of property development and urban regeneration. He started out as a surveyor and he went on to become a director of the hugely successful city centre regeneration specialist Urban Splash, the chair of Marketing Manchester. He was also a teacher at Yale and he had all sorts of other advisory positions and all sorts of stuff going on too. Now, but in 2001, he went into a self-imposed exile, leaving those and several other roles behind to start again. Now, that decision led him to take on the redevelopment of the Market Hall in Altrincham in Cheshire alongside his partner, Jen. And they had huge success there, which led soon afterwards to them taking their formula of semi-industrial style and carefully curated independent traders a step further by creating Mackie Mayer uh, from a grade two listed market building on the edge of Manchester's northern quarter. They've also got a third um, project in the pipeline too. It's been massively successful for both of them and for the city uh, of Manchester and for Altrincham. In this really fascinating interview, which I love doing, hear how Nick was heavily involved and influenced by the factory record scene in the 1990s, why he likes to keep things just on the edge of falling apart at all times, and why he now never takes a meeting that involves more than three people. So I feel like we need to, to start by saying where we are. So we are currently in your office. Shed. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah, it does feel like more like a shed. It is a shed overlooking the market hall on one side, um, which is the, your project, the well, Altrincham Market Hall. It, it, it kind of is. Um, this all kind of predates us by some mark. Uh, on the wall there is a plaque uh, a coat of arms, presumably from Altrincham, uh, that has the date stone in a scarf or <laughs> uh, an emblem, and that is 1879. Uh, and beneath that is the wor- are the words Gasketh Mayor, who was the uh, the mayor of uh, Altrincham or Trafford at the time that this market was built. So okay, that's, that's it who it is, it Gasketh Mayor. Yeah, it kind of predates us. Well, the, what used to happen, and, and our building in Manchester is called Mackie Mayor. Yeah. Uh, that got colloquially um, named Mackie Mayor because the name of the mayor of the time, Mackie, uh, Mayor Mackie, was etched on the front of the building. So um, these buildings were built in the days of intense civic pride when... Uh, the mayors wanted uh, and were proud enough to have their name emblazoned on the buildings that they uh, um, were authors of or just happened to be the mayor of uh, at the time that the buildings were built. So, Mm. um, yeah, there is deep history, um, but we've only been here for the last... Um, five years, so we're we're freshers still mm. <laughs> uh, in the context of the deep history of Altrincham and its market. Yeah, and on the other side, we've got the covered market, the more, sort of more traditional market with stalls. But from here, you can basically see everything, can't you? So, do you sort of direct operations from here? Is that how uh, it feels? I, I wish. <laughs> uh, I, I no. Um, what's great about it is you can see uh, both sides, and what. I find particularly enjoyable. It's it's kind of slightly quieter looking out onto the covered market because there's no music, but you can see people. What what mm. I'm looking at at the moment are, are probably 25 people in the middle of a wreath making workshop yep. with uh, Chloe, who's one of our resident 
a floral artists or florist or uh, she's fantastic but they're all busy making christmas decorations for their doors so i can see that but what i can yep. hear um on the other side is is the background music and the delightful hum of uh, the public um mm. because we're always busy and there's always this hum of humanity that um that warms my back as I sit at my desk. <laughs> I know that life is going on all right when yeah. I can hear everything that happens down in Market House. So, uh, and it's it's a kind of it's a buzz that I can't really do without now. I go into other people's offices and it feels incredibly quiet and sanitised. And yeah. I, I think that um, what I can hear and what I feel when I walk out of here is this blast of uh, the warmth of humankind. <laughs> yeah, and you find that 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 hustle and bustle that buzz is a big help in all the other stuff that you're doing too yeah um it's a necessity really um i liken uh what we have to a controlled chaos that <laughs> you might find uh, in an improvised piece of jazz or blues or reggae where um you kind of feel that the tune is just about to fall apart but is somehow held together and is incredibly exciting because um, that's the point at which uh, you get a real sense of soul and um, excitement. And uh, uh, it's interesting that our staff now also understand where that kind of boundary is and we try and hold it there uh, um, hopefully never allowing it to tumble into chaos we've done a pretty good job in the last five years yeah well I was going to say it's not for everybody is it that approach of sort of just teetering on the the edge of falling apart as you say I mean does it take certain types of people to to enjoy that um i don't think it takes people yeah yeah there are certain people who are repulsed by um (laughs) sitting with others on shared tables with uh with dogs uh around in fact it's one of the um one of the things that we get criticized for on the uh uh the revenge porn site that we call TripAdvisor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, where people um, get their own back on us by sticking one-star reviews on because there happens to have been a dog um, on the table, on on their table. Um, And so, yeah, clearly not everybody wants... Do you go uh, through those reviews? uh, I think we've had 800 reviews now, a majority of which are four and five star. Um, We we have, um, in, in an act of irony, have pinned up printed off and pinned up all the one-star reviews on what we call the wall of shame uh um and that that was we got a lot of press for that actually uh when we did that we were in the daily mail i think not a paper that i read but <laughs> the um people were aghast that we had the audacity to print off our one-star reviews some people found it funny some thought we were being arrogant mm. uh what what i i was doing was um was actually um, in, in fact, one of one of the people who who had put a TripAdvisor review out there was appalled uh, that their uh, review had actually been turned into reality because right. there's this sense of people who leave reviews that they, they're not going to be seen by anybody or it's not yeah. real online. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> our attempt to uh, print these off and pin them on the wall was an, a, an, an attempt to. Ha- have a go at that sense of uh, anonymity. Yeah. You know, the minute that you turn it from browsing it on your smartphone or or iPad or whatever device and physically print it out and put a frame around it, 
then uh, it takes on a different sense of reality. So, um, uh, uh, and 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 that sense of reality is something that we're very much about. We, you know, we've talked about the uh, the noise of people uh, in the place, and uh, our um, attempt with everything that we do is to be the antidote to uh, online. Mm. So, uh, taking something that was. Um, very much intended to be left online, a TripAdvisor review, printing it off and putting it in a frame <laughs> on, what we, on, on, the wall, on our wall of shame, um, was an attempt uh, to subvert that whole process. And, and it's, the, it's the voyeurism as well. It, it, was, mm. it was our attempt to be, you, you know, because TripAdvisor is voyeuristic. Um, and we were attempting to uh, uh, turn the turn the tables really and and ourselves be, become voyeurs of mm. these one star reviews in in the real world so um yeah it's it's a there's lots of things going on in here it's and it's delightful the ca- the chaos some people hate it some people uh, but i would say i would say 95% of the people that uh, come in here mm. love it and come back is the wall of shame still going or has it been uh, uh, it's, taken it's been, down it's been no it's still going but the number <laughs> of sadly the number of one star reviews uh, uh, we might get many more now uh, uh, has dwindled um, and we do get the occasional one but it, they tend to be uh, incredibly badly uh, written and just an attempt to um, get us back for something that m- maybe we weren't even responsible mm. for you know uh, some people um, have, have well, you, people who visit here can read them for themselves, but you know they, they don't like sitting next to. I can't say the word, but middle class. Uh, <laughs> you can say the word if you want. There's no well, uh, middle class wankers basically, <laughs> uh, and I think that that um, you know. So that, that's the kind of attitude. Guardian reading, yeah, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, you, you're going to get that anywhere, but uh, nowadays you can. You can voice a, a, a very ill-considered opinion very yeah. quickly. One thing I guess, though, thinking about that is that you know you could easily just ignore those one-star reviews, but obviously you felt compelled to to read them and, and and in some way take them seriously. Well, we do take criticism seriously, but it, where it's valid, and what you will see with the one-star stuff is that it, it's just um, mindless rants of, right. of, um, and revenge. Um, the ones who finesse their um, their view and make a considered uh, um, representation we take note of. Mm. Um, there, there are very few. Considering we feed here, we feed about 10,000 people a week. Mm. Um, that's a large volume of customers that come through here. Um, so uh, considering the number of people that we please, um, the number of people that we fail is, is very few and far between, thankfully. Mm. But yeah. Now, many people would describe this like many of your other work as a regeneration project mm. and you know looking at reading about what you've done and where you've worked regeneration is the word that keeps coming up yeah. all over the place now would you describe these projects as regeneration that's, first of all that, that's entirely what this set out to be yeah uh, i spent uh 25 years in the world of regeneration when mm. it was in its nascent form in uh, Manchester in the 1988 89, uh, when the then Thatcher government were looking at um, cities uh, outside of London that were failing, there'd, there'd been riots in Toxteth and um, in, in, in other cities. And um, Michael Heseltine had, uh, who, who, who was a, a very intelligent 
uh, individual and, and who, who, whose path I crossed 25 years later when I was an expert witness on the, um, the government's inquiry into regeneration and Michael Heseltine, select committee into regeneration and Michael Heseltine was called to give evidence. So it was kind of mm-hmm. weird that 25 years <laughs> later that he should be... Um, in, did you have in, a chat with him while you were there? I didn't no. actually, no. But there, there, I have, do have stories to tell. But the, 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 the um, regeneration started in Manchester with this actually predates Central Manchester Development Corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the earliest things was the uh, what was called the Salford Phoenix Initiative. So they, they were in the, in the late eighties. Uh, they were already considering how they might organ. Local authorities were thinking how they might organise themselves um, to effect change because of the issues that post-industrial economies faced um, in the aftermath of the nineteen seventies and early eighties. So mm. um, then there was Central Manchester Development Corporation. And I uh, was working with a firm of surveyors in Manchester at the time, and we, um, I, I pitched for uh, a contract for some of their work because they used to outsource certain certain work. But regeneration was in my blood. When I left college, I, I understood that I wanted to affect change, uh, particularly in the place in which mm. I lived. So well, I was going to ask you that why why is it then? Do you think you were drawn to regeneration as a you know very specific? Sort of area. Um, I should have been an architect, really, but I wasn't intelligent enough. Uh, my best mate, Mike, was an architect, um, and I had a, a grew up in the in the kind of late or, or, or matured in the late eighties uh, when uh, the magazines uh, that were being published were the Face and ID, mm. and there was a an, a, a burgeoning post punk music scene in Manchester, and it was a very credible uh, city to be at that point in time and given the fact that I wasn't going to become an architect I was I was uh, I, I did what all of those who, who can't do which was become a chartered surveyor but why um, why couldn't you do it then why, what was the, uh, what was the problem? I didn't have the creativity I, I, at the time I didn't I think I, I was I've always I suppose been late in developing skills and um, I think that I didn't have the uh, uh, background or in- intuition or connections to understand that uh, architecture had great possibilities. So Was that an ambition at that time, though, but you felt like... No, not really. I wasn't right. unaware. I just kind of sleptwalked into... I didn't know what I wanted to do. I still don't know what I want to do, <laughs> but the, I, I sleptwalked into being, becoming a surveyor like a lot of kids do partly because my dad was a surveyor so, right, okay. uh, uh, and, and if you don't know what to do you just kind of you end up doing what your dad did <laughs> uh, and it wasn't really until the final year uh, I did a, a year out from Sheffield I was studying at Sheffield did a year out with a co- company called Guest Shore a firm of surveyors on St Anne's Square and uh, I then went back to Sheffield because it was called a sandwich course. So he did this year out. Went back for my final year, and uh, I'd had an epiphany really that okay. I understood that uh, actually being involved in the built environment, the world of property, was significant. You could have a profound impact on uh, on a place mm. because you were manipulating the built environment one way or another, and. Um, I had an incredibly 
great good teacher in my final year at university called John Hennebury, who uh, still remains in touch. Is a it was a vibrant mind and uh, was able to articulate this in a in a slightly more um, academic way uh, that wet my appetite. So mm. by the time I left college, I knew that I had a role to play in terms of orchestrating change through regeneration and I was that together with the post-punk period when uh, there was a lot of things that were happening in the city it was a credible city Manchester was a credible mm. city to, to be in mainly in my mind because of what Tony Wilson and Factory Records represented and had done and were doing um, and uh, I wanted to play my own role in shaping the city and uh, Peter Saville is a good friend of mine from that period who remains very close mm. and he and I talk about it and Peter uh, is 10 years younger than me but he's from Altrincham so he comes back here mm. um, infrequently but when he does I usually drive him around where he <laughs> uh, 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 where he used to um, what does he make frequent. of how it's changed uh, he's delighted. I mean, he, ca he came back and, and uh, was in conversation with Marianne Hobbs uh, uh, across the way at Altingham Town Hall mm. during uh, our uh, alternative Harvest Festival. It's called Harfest in September, not last year, the year before. And, he, uh, you know, Peter is a great fan of... He, he, uh, of of the work that I've done, uh, he, his work is significantly more profound. But we 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 do enjoy each other's company and are great friends. And mm. um, you know he 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 likes very much what's happened here. But um, in the I and I didn't meet Peter until uh, I was the chairman of marketing Manchester. So our, our friendship has really only been over the last fifteen or sixteen years. Mm. I didn't know him at the time that he was at, at Factory or, or doing work for uh, Factory but Peter had moved to London um, and my view was that you have two choices uh, as an individual, you either um, move to a place that more easily reflects what you are hmm. uh, and, and what your own aspirations are and uh, where there are people who, who are, are like you uh, or you can try and change the place in which you live. Um, and I uh, followed the latter course because I wanted to effect change in Manchester and, and the city in which I lived. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, what, what was interesting was that 20 years later, when I met Peter, um, and through various conversations that we've had in the intervening period, um, one of the things he says is about cities, and he, he, he's massively um, inf intelligent in terms of the way he discusses most things, but in, mm. in terms of cities, uh, P Peter says that people get the city they deserve. <laughs> um, and I think that that's an incredibly profound statement, mm. and I think that... Um, you can scale that up and you can scale that down. You can say people get the town they deserve, people get the village they deserve, people mm. get the country they deserve. Um, uh, in this instance, uh, uh, in relation to Altrincham, what we had was um, a town that I felt the people didn't deserve. It was no reflection of um, the people who lived here, uh, the people who lived locally. Mm. It had no relevance 
or, or part to play. And so um, it's funny how these these threads, these thoughts, these conversations over 25 to 30 years begin to kind of weave together. But mm. but the, 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 before that, you know, I, I'd spent 25 years um, doing all kinds of things, trying to not only improve Manchester but also uh, at Turbine Splash we were responsible for work in many other cities as well so mm. I, was, I was having an impact on other people's places as well as my uh, my hometown mm. um, and is altering your hometown well I was born in Bolton, Bolton. I, I was brought up in the posh part of Salford uh, worsley and um, made altering my home when I finally left uh, um, my parents <laughs> at home when at the ripe old age of 26 right. so um, uh, and uh, which isn't uncommon these days you know no. it's getting later and later but um, it is altering him uh, is 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 my adopted home um, and uh, but I'm I am from from Manchester from Greater Manchester yeah um, and those early years were were really um were really interesting um and importantly i i, I was having this discussion with people yesterday at the uh, an Allsop supercrit at Westminster University. There was a, uh, yeah. they were critting some of Will Allsop, one of Will Allsop's pro- seminal projects, the the grand hmm. the grand blur, and uh, they Will Allsop in 1990 was chosen to design this building in Marseille. It was a regeneration project, so it was in the during the time the Mitterrand Grand Projet. Oh, so yeah. uh, they were building, they were using the administrative function of of French. Uh, towns and the, and the local civic functions uh, to uh, as, as a tool of regeneration and so this was a hotel de um, de ville uh, a town hall uh, that was being built by an architectural competition it was, it was um, and will uh, pitch for it beat Norman Foster to uh, the uh, the job, and they were an office of five people at the time, <laughs> and uh, I was lamenting uh, about the uh, the delight of that fact that that would never happen now. That that you couldn't enter a competition to build a building in the south of France for a hundred million pounds as an office of five people. It simply wouldn't happen. When was this then? That this did nineteen ninety, right? Um, and I I was saying to people yesterday that. I, there is a delightful sense of innocence about that period of time. It predates all the compliance rituals that we now have to uh, pass through. And mm. uh, if if there was to be a competition like that these days, uh, there would be um, 2,000 pages of compliance and health and safety legislation. And, mm. and if you were an architectural practice that didn't have all of that you would simply not be allowed to enter the competition hmm. and and um so i was lamenting on the passage of of that and and i think that that's what manchester was like in many senses in the 1990s that hmm. uh there were no rules around regeneration regeneration uh took on t- different guises it was largely property uh related but um 
there was there was no precedent for it. It was a it was a new industry. There were very few people involved in it, mm. and so things could happen incredibly quickly because there were so few people that knew yeah. anything about what was going on. Um, what was the first project? Do you remember that you first yeah, regeneration the first, project? The first major project that was the f- real feather in my cap was with um, a project called um, Eastgate. And this is when you were working as a chartered surveyor. Yeah, I'd. Yeah. I'd um, <coughs> I work for. I've only worked for somebody ever for a total period of six months. Um, And I'd left college at 24 and uh, worked for the firm that I worked with during my sandwich year for a period of six months after I left college before deciding, incredibly naively, to go, uh, and arrogantly, I suppose, to uh, go and do it myself. Mm. Um, And I had. during my time there, uh, wrote uh, a letter to a guy called Jim Ramsbottom, uh, who was the local bookmaker. Yep. Um, and I wrote a four-page letter that was uh, like a, a college essay that was a, um, a, 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 a an, an homage, a paean to Castlefield, which was this area, that, uh, a historic area of Manchester mm. that, that lies on the south, uh, southern edge of the city, um, that I fell in love with because I, I have a passion for, for canals and um, boats, um, canal boats. and uh, So I knew Castlefield from the water. Um, and uh, Castlefield's an amazing part of the city because it's where... The Roman fort was built in AD 79. Uh, a Roman emperor called Agricola was the first to build a, a, a fort in the city that became Mancunium. Hmm. And uh, the walls of that Roman fort are in Castlefield, which is why it's called Castlefield. Yeah. Um, and then each successive layer of history has been overlaid through that area. So um, the uh, first thing was that the first ever cut canal was built to bring coal in from the coal mines in Worsley, which happens to be where I was brought up, so I knew a little bit about the underground mines in Worsley, yeah. uh, the Duke's Canal into Manchester and uh, the warehouses that were there that were being supplied, there, were, there was Grocer's Warehouse so they, they used to unload the, the canal boats into Grocer's Warehouse but they were all, they were all derelict uh, um, and then uh, uh, 20 years after the canals came the railway, you know, um, the first railway to run was from Liverpool Street Station, which is in that area as well. So there's this intense history yeah. uh, surrounding that. And, and they're all they're all layered. The canals dug down, uh, the Roman fort was built up, and then above <laughs> all of that, uh, the railway sails over the top of it all. Yeah. And the only thing, the Victorians weren't great held no great regard for recent history but they did in Castlefield castellate all the tops of the uh, railway bridges as as a reference to the historic significance of that part of the city which is very rare for Victorians to have done that so you've got this this bizarre 3D layers of of Manchester's past in Castlefield Mm. and Jim Ramsbottom happened to own uh, a lot of the land around there because he used to have a betting shop on uh, Liverpool Road around the corner and he used to tell me that um, 
every time he, he lost a bet and had to pay somebody out, he got depressed. Right. And so to cheer himself up, he used to go around the corner and buy a building. <laughs> Uh, okay. as you so do. yeah, as you do. <laughs> so he would he would be, would have been in those days paying twenty or thirty thousand pounds. So he was just hoovering up, yeah, loads of that area. Yeah, and it was th- th- it was it, it was no it was of no interest to anybody. Yeah, um, and I wrote this floral letter uh, about <laughs> my uh, uh, love of Castlefield and the the potential that I thought it had. And a guy called Roger Stevenson, who's a great architect, um, had built a converted St Matthew's Church which was on Liverpool Road and it had won Office of the Year in the architectural press in 1988 probably Mm. Um, it's a beautiful little contemporary conversion of an old uh, warehouse Uh, sorry an old chapel and I was aware it's where uh, SJM concerts now are uh, based and I was aware of Roger's work and I was I believed in the importance of design because I'd mm. grown up through this post-punk era with the graphic design of language of Neville Brodie and the album covers of Peter Saville mm. so design was was a, was a significant part of my um, life and Jim was this um, uh, avuncular <laughs> figure um, who had just that September I wrote to him he'd, he'd had a nervous breakdown I think and he'd sold his business to Ladbrokes or right. it was I don't think the deal had signed and moved to the Isle of Man um, just to get away from it or couldn't, couldn't deal with it anymore and then it got to the Isle of Man and started to play golf uh, and was drinking gin and tonic at 11.30 in the morning because right. he hadn't got anything to do and he just decided that actually he really didn't want to move to the Isle of Man no. so before the deal was signed he moved back and I caught him just as he came back and uh, for four or five years he was a mate of mine and mm. I helped him to um, uh, make the figures work because the 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 development corporation at the time was able to give out this thing called gap finance so when a when a building is built it's worth let's say a million pounds mm. uh, but it's cost 1.2 million pounds to uh, to construct because the yep. economics of it the market for commercial property wouldn't justify a greater value so what mm. used to happen was you used to get quarter of a million pounds worth of grants to make it work to I make see. it economically viable and yep. a quarter of a million pounds was, would have been your profit so it was able to. I was able to uh, effect change in the built environment during a, a down cycle of the property market. So Eastgate, we we decided. Jim had money, uh, cash from his bookmaking business, and he decided that he 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 enjoyed the conversations that we had. Decided that he was going to do something with this building called Eastgate, mm. and in uh, 1991 uh, we. Uh, brought it to the commercial property market. Now, 1991 was it was in the aftermath of Black Monday, mm. so the, the the commercial property market in Manchester was completely on its knees. The banking sector was in crisis. Interest rates were at 17 and a half percent. And I, I remember uh, w- walking into the. F- you used to have to have your projects assessed, peer peer reviewed, and I walked into the offices of. Um, I can't remember what they were called now. They're now DTZ, uh, a guy called Ken Bishop. And he gave me about two minutes of his time and he said, uh, I'll say two things about this project. 
uh, <laughs> you've let the architect get away with far too much. Right. That was a typical surveyor's response because we had cafes and stuff in there. And, mm. and he said, and the other thing is, this building will never let. That was it. <laughs> but he said, it's a pretty but, uh, damning but, summary. But you can have your grant. That's okay. Right. So we, we, it was completed. Interestingly, Eastgate was the only building that let in right. 1991. <laughs> so it was it was complete. And, and I see Ken to this day, and he holds his hands up, and he right. says, I was completely wrong. So it was the only building in 1991 in Manchester to let to contemporary companies. So, yeah. for example, Ocean Software, who made computer games uh, and were... Yeah, they made some of the... I used to play loads of their games yeah. in the late 80s, Yeah, exactly. 90s. So so they would franchise Batman, the yeah. movie, was yeah. coming out. And so they'd buy the rights to Batman uh, and they would comp- make a computer game. Yeah. Uh, and, and was so Operation on Wolf one of theirs? I can't, oh, I can't remember, remember. I wasn't a gamer. So, <laughs> But I knew uh, the guys who... Uh, in fact, one, one of the guys, Dave Ward, literally has an office across from... Right. Um, Market House now. So they took two floors. A Dutch furniture company called Aaron took a floor. The mainstream and centre screen were a conference production company and a TV production company took space. So we'd filled it with these industries that were uh, the emerging, uh, the early stage really of the technology industries mm. that we uh, now know are so important. So, um, and and so, I, I suppose I've always been a person who. It's all very well telling people that good design mattered and good mm. design would let buildings. And you can tell people until you're blue in the face, but until you've got been out there and you've done it yeah. and, and got an example and say, that's what I meant, Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you often uh, find it very difficult to get that point across. So mm. that was my moment of that's what I meant. Right. And that just hit all the boxes. It was very commercial. The rents that were achieved there were way beyond anybody's expectations mm. without any pre without sorry without any rent free periods to companies who were these modern companies mm. they weren't the old school uh, lawyers in Manchester kind of thing so it was kind of refreshing for me and and yeah. it was it was great reputation because I was able to you know people were kind of saying oh, actually it, it did works. work yeah yeah and what did um, I mean you mentioned your dad was a surveyor yeah. what sort of stuff did he do and what oh, did he n- think of you uh, Going alone, going he, alone. He and I time. have never got along in business. Right. Uh, we have completely the. Uh, Why? Why is that? I, I don't know really. We have different, completely different views that are irreconcilable. What's his view? Uh, oh, he's he, able to make it a sort he, of general. He, 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 I think if you were to ask him when I wasn't present, <laughs> he would be very proud of the yeah. work that I've been involved in. If you, if if you were locked in a room together, he would tell me that what I was doing was a complete and utter waste of time and uh, <laughs> utterly irrelevant. So Irrelevant? Why, why well, I don't, I don't know. I, I, it's a very complex your relationship with your father and yeah. I, I, I don't think it, it, it's not the same as with, with anybody else. So um, I think uh, he was doing the kind of things, very relatively small scale, he was largely a housing developer in, in around... Worsley and um, Swinton and walked in and uh, stuff, and so it was. It, it wasn't really my bag. Um, a bit more sort of traditional surveying. Surveying. Yeah, he was a develop- It was yeah, uh, an estate agent and, and uh, a surveyor. So yeah, he was a um, quite traditional, and I think uh, we've never been in business. To- we couldn't ever be in business together. <laughs> so it was a. a um, uh, not only that, but I also wanted to do. I, I 
things for myself. I'd led a relatively privileged existence. I was an only child. I got pretty much what I wanted. I was privately educated. Right. Um, so I hadn't suffered any real hardship during my uh, uh, the period I was growing up. But then I realised that I wanted, therefore, to have done what I did myself without um, support from uh, my parents as I emerged into doing that kind of thing. What so, did he think about you, you know, going it alone? Um, he, I suppose, thought I was a bit stupid. Uh, but they, you know, I lived at home at that stage, so they were taking a bit of the risk away from mm. not having to pay a mortgage or pay the rent and, and house. Mm. And generally supportive. My mum was very supportive. because. What did your mum do? Uh, she... she supported everyone basically right. <laughs> so she she ran around and uh, uh, helped him out at work and uh, she was the the glue that knitted us all together right. she, she unfortunately she died about six years ago but um, she was a um, uh, she was a vital component uh, in making everybody feel good about themselves <laughs> and did she support you in the decisions yeah, yeah she supports me in, in everything I was a mummy's boy really so right. she was um she was a uh, 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 very proud and very supportive. So, um, the, but I, I was, and, uh, and, and I've remained very close to them th- throughout my life, and they've mm. had a very close relationship with all of their um, grandchildren, and our kids. So, mm. um, but uh, the. They they weren't really didn't get the city. You know, they were they'd grown up. I suppose during the time when Manchester was not a place that you would ever think about living in um, and interestingly the foundation of my interest in Manchester I've, I've just remembered this now talking mm-hmm. about that when I was at college in 1988 my dissertation was grandly entitled A Case for the Introduction of Residential Accommodation into Manchester City Centre. Right, yeah, because back in those times, yeah, nobody, nobody lived, lived in town, did they? There were 200 lived people lived in town yeah. on two projects. One was in Granbury Row, uh, which was Northern Counties uh, Housing Association Development, and the other was uh, Wimpy developed this mm. uh, uh, um, scheme of townhouses off Deansgate called St John's Gardens. So those were the only two sets of people that lived in Manchester. Mm. And my point when I was thinking about it um, on, in very simple terms around basic principles of human geography was that the, the central business district was always had a ring of things around it that supported it and if Manchester was going through a transitional change to become a service sector economy then it was very logical that um, that it needed workers in the service sector to be around that central business district um, and not only that, that loft living was becoming quite sexy and Manchester had a lot of sexy industrial buildings. Yeah. Um, and it was a... The, the point I made then in 1988, so it's 30 years ago, was that Manchester can only become a real city... Uh, when there are at least half a million people living here, because if you looked at, at other places, yeah, they needed a certain level of population to make the them sustainable, to make uh, to create the demand for the bars and restaurants, to create the demand for play spaces for kids and schools and infrastructure. And in Manchester now, we're probably still only at 
150,000, 200,000. So there's still a way to go before mm. this um, the city is mature enough and contains enough people living here to make it feel like a true European city. Mm. Um, but I was, you know, very much in at the start of all of that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I suppose relatively prescient in 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 um, the way in which I thought that that might kind of unfold throughout the years. Mm. So when you were at school and you know growing up, what were you into then? What was the the big th- what were the main passions? I should have been into punk. <laughs> I should have been, but I was too I was too much of a mummy's boy, <laughs> and it was too nasty uh, for me. And uh, that was my biggest single regret because really? actually punk is the s- single most significant um, cultural phenomenon to have happened in my lifetime um and i was too young to have seen the sex pistols at free trade hall in 1976 mm. although i am i don't i don't think i've ever claimed to have been there because i've been <laughs> 10 but there were a lot of people as you know that claim to have been at yeah, that seminal gone gig. down in legend hasn't it it's and uh and it was, you know, it was significant. But I was growing up, I was, you know, middle class, privately schooled, privately schooled in Bolton, mm. uh, l- sadly listening to prog rock. Right. Uh, and, and kind of not too heavy metal. And I kind of, I'm very embarrassed about that lack of credibility. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'd rather have been able to say that I was buying the, and, and had all the early Joy Division vinyl first editions <laughs> and had my Hacienda membership card but I didn't didn't uh, I, I but what I, what is ironic I formed an incredibly close relationship with all of those people yeah subsequently <coughs> um, so it kind of didn't matter um, but I had a very um, my <coughs> teenage years up until I was about 18 uh, were in Lacked credibility, credibility with um, with a plum, <laughs> <laughs> sadly. But do you have you sort of retrospectively? Got, oh yeah, got yeah, into yeah, all that yeah. Stuff As and, soon as I got it, that, yeah. then I had to atone for all of that. <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> and I think one of the moments where that changed was when we built and opened a bar in Manchester called Atlas at the bottom end of Deansgate yeah. in 1992. Um, and I remember uh, there were only three bars at that stage that had any kind of contemporaneous, contempor- con- no, sorry, contemporaneous is a bad word, <laughs> that, were, that were in any way new. Yeah. Um, so how did that come about, getting Atlas together? Because that, beca- you know, that was, still is. Yeah. You know, well, I've never been back since we sold it in right. 2000, but the, the, there was, I wanted to be part of it. Um, and... Uh, we were doing our bit. I, I set up a consultancy practice in Knott Mill, in the building that Ian Simpson, the architect and close friend, uh, had developed with some partners. And I took a small office, mm. about twice the size of this actually, mm-hmm. in a building there. Um, and we became known as the Knott Mill Mafia because there were all these um, people that over time were significant in, mm. in terms of the city. So in the 10 years that I was there, by the end, no, no, there was nobody 
occupying the buildings uh, other than us in Commercial Wharf. By the time I left, uh, Rob Gretton had Rob's records there. Uh, Tony Wilson lived in his loft that right. I'd found him uh, there that he bought from Ian Simpson. Mm. Uh, they um, uh, 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 and uh, Factory had their um, he had his office in a recording studio that had been uh, built by Chris Joyce, the drummer from Simply Red. So th- there was, th- there was a, if you were outside of it looking in, you'd kind of feel excluded. But mm. we we were all part part of of that. Um, and I was when we were looking at Not Mill and trying to effect change in that backwater adjacent to Castlefield. Um, we came across this arch that was on Deansgate that that was the, the f- uh, at the entrance point into Knot Mill between mm. it and Knot Mill Station. It's now called Deansgate Station, but it, it, in stone it's still called Knot Mill. <coughs> and uh, no, ordinarily, as consultants, we would have passed this off to another third party to develop somebody who ran pubs. Mm. And I thought, actually, I've always quite fancied um, owning a bar, being part of this emergent mm. cafe culture scene. Um, I've been to Paris and been to uh, Philippe Stark's designed uh, Café Costa at, at, at Beaubourg and, you know, kind of loved all of that kind of stuff. So it was a question of bringing that back into Manchester. And, uh, there were dry bar preempted us uh, yeah. in a slightly different way. It was Factory's um, attempt to do something that was a, a uh, an important departure from the traditional boozer. And Jim Ramsbottom, with encouragement from me and the sidelines, had opened the first iteration of Dukes 92 yeah. uh, in Castlefield and Carol Ainsco had opened Manto in the village so we were kind of fourth um, and so we bought into that mm. uh, really with what we did so we, we decided, Ian Simpson the architect and Rachel and Jenny and I decided that we were going to do our own thing here so we thought don't give it to a third party let's do it ourselves so we got a brewery loan we hadn't got any money at that stage um, we got a bit of a grant from the development corporation, about twenty grand for doing up the outside. So, for, with one hundred and twenty grand, we did Atlas. And uh, I remember Rob Gretton walking into the bar on maybe three days or four days after we'd first opened, mm. and he kind of looked around. He didn't say anything, but basically never left after that. Right. <laughs> um, and we were. Um, we were subsumed into the the the, the final chapter of mm. that whole Manchester music scene. We were there uh, until its death uh, in about t- 1997, 1998. Well, it, di- it died with Rob, actually, so mm. I can't remember exactly when Rob died. But um, in the meantime, we bought our way into... Uh, uh, the credible uh, uh, veins of the city mm. um, and so from that point of view Atlas was really important because it, it gave me in particular and the others around us uh, the, the credibility that we needed to engage mm. with people who we had the greatest respect of and that respect was a kind of mutual thing Yeah, and what was that like then being around at that time the really 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 exciting yeah. I mean it was the f- it was the tail end of it and it really wasn't in the in the um at the, at the height of of their strength nevertheless it was still 
really uh, empowering and invigorating that we yeah. were doing things collectively that were significant and um, I, I've written about Atlas in those final um, year in the final year, the final two years probably where it was the on a Friday night in Atlas at five o'clock it was the crucible of the city's vigorous imagination hmm. it was where all of the people that were there that were doing anything in the city of hmm. interest who, who were really uh, uh, interesting people would get together on a Friday in Atlas so you know the the crew from Factory Tony Wilson would be in there uh, uh, Bruce Mitchell from the Juriti column Vinnie Riley uh, um, Mike Pickering uh, Paul uh, Mason who managed the Hacienda and Dry Bar uh, everybody would just be in there because it just seemed like this natural mm. uh, place to meet up and you'd have these conversations i remember the first conversation with tony wilson about mp3s fucking the fucking mp3s the future <laughs> the future and everybody's like what's he on about <laughs> you know and so he uh, knew what was coming yeah he was always he was always um way ahead of the pack yeah in fact what he what's interesting about tony was that um there were two things he said and i think one of them is a quote either from lou reed or from david bowie that he stole which was <laughs> there's no point in being more than 10 minutes ahead of your time <laughs> which I think is very uh, um, profound mm. and the other one is if you can see a bandwagon you've missed it <laughs> yeah um, and, and those two phrases have remained with me because that's about timing of what you do and yeah. it's significant in the and adventure I guess that, that relates to on. sort of striking out on your own in a way you know you're not following the herd you're doing something yeah. first and that's yeah. that can be quite scary and not doing things first was always important to me mm. um, and and latterly came back with Peter Saville when Peter, we managed to get Peter back um, to Manchester uh, in 2006 2007 2006 I think when um, there was sufficient intelligence within the city to understand that there was a need for somebody to fulfil the role of the creative director for the city mm. and uh, Manchester invited myself along with a few other troublemakers in <laughs> to uh Assist them in the choice of a creative director, and the lineup was fantastic. You know, uh, there was uh, Wolf Ollins, the famous kind of advertising guru. Mm. Uh, there was um, Xavier Mariscal, the guy behind Kobe and the stuff for the Barcelona Olympics. Oh, yeah. So there's a Barcelona um, design house that were offered to pitch. Um, Peter Saville, Mark Farrow, uh, another graphic designer from Manchester, um, and uh, a couple of other people, Will Allsop actually, who who gave an, uh, a recorded interview because he happened to be in India at the time, and so that we were we were sat and we interviewed seven amazing people, and I remember Peter. I hadn't met him until then, and Peter came in in his turtleneck sweater and smart. <laughs> tailored jacket took mm. his jacket off and sat there rolled his sleeves up and basically told the panel uh, what a shithole Manchester was <laughs> right. for an hour 
<laughs> and I sat there uh, uh, enwrapped in Peter's uh, conversation because that's really what you can only ever really have a conversation with Peter and everything he said was absolutely right and uh, and my view was that you can only move forward as a city if you be prepared to be self-critical about mm. what you are right now and he, he hit it on the head and I was vehement that Peter should become that person that we should work with Yeah. Uh, but of course there were four people on the seven person panel that felt strongly that how on earth could you bring in somebody who's been so yes. blunt yeah. and honest uh, and critical of the city and I, of course that was the reason that I thought that should happen so we had to call in uh, uh, Tony Wilson was meant to be there and wasn't <laughs> so uh, I managed to get him to kind of telephone in with a vote for Peter and ultimately <laughs> it went down to two people and I think that Peter was shall we say more competitive yeah. uh, at the time uh, in terms of his fees so he was chosen as the city's creative director and mm. remained in that position until uh, for the best period of about 10 years that he, he, he was um, rudely um, outed by the Daily Mail um, during the time post-recession post-2000 and uh, nine, ten, I think, when the um, coalition government took power, mm. and there was this sense of uh, gloom in the post Lehman Brothers collapsed financial problems, and then that had an, uh, an impact on funding for local authorities. Yeah. And so a lot so of regional funding just went yeah. overnight. So to have a a creative director that was paid £100,000 a year was seen as being this loony left council that were mm. employing this crazy wonder kid from the world of the creative world and what an indulgence that was so mm. how wrong they were but um, you know you can't escape uh, the brutality of a Daily Mail headline um, no so Peter's role kind of adjusted but that was that fortunately there was five or six years where he was able to to lay down a profound lattice of ideas and uh, conversations that mm. have had in many ways a profound impact subsequently on the city a yeah. regenerative impact you know that um, P Peter was behind the selection of of Alex Poots as the festival director for the International Festival and we know how significant that became mm. um, Peter laid down uh, and was paid for the provocation of Manchester Original Modern and uh, it, it was it was his uh, choice of two words that are juxtaposed Original Modern um, because Manchester is the original city of the industrial age, it's the first modern city so um, the originality and and you talked about that in the context of, of my own pursuits mm. the need to be original the need to, to, to originate is is part of my DNA yeah. as a result of 
what those guys did. Yeah. Uh, so you felt inspired by them, their, their work, that what you wanted to emulate them by doing original stuff. Yes. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's nothing in life that's original. You mm. know, what we're sat in is, is a market, you know. Uh, we haven't invented markets. We haven't no. invented <laughs> eating. Uh, uh, we haven't invested invented restaurants but no. it's like everything else it's the way you pull together the strands of an idea yeah. uh, and reassemble them into making it something new and modern yeah. so this I would believe in the work that we do is original modern and, and, and Peter's I remember when I was uh, I was stood I was the visiting professor of architecture at Yale in the States at the time and I didn't see any of Peter's presentation to the panel when he'd won his, and when was re- required within a couple of months to produce some form of output and I, I'd come back from the States and I was walking through Castlefield and I got a phone call from Tony Wilson and he said fucking brilliant <laughs> I said what, what? Peter's presentation, fucking brilliant <laughs> I said what is it? he said original, modern and it just stopped me in my tracks because for me that was so profound, mm. two words and I immediately saw it as an economic development strategy. If Manchester uh, had had the intelligence to seize that properly, and it, mm. I don't think it ever really did, unfortunately, um, but if everybody asked them, was tasked with the obligation and asked themselves, is what I am doing original and modern, then the city could have really flourished mm. and given itself a, a, a significant competitive edge because that was how it, it could have been... Mm. Um, it could have been grown and so when I saw it some people I suppose the city who were commissioning and paying for his work wanted a saw it as a strap line and they wanted a logo to go with it and right. you know and Peter's always said look <laughs> this is not I will not do a logo I will not do you know this is not about logo and strap line um, and I think the city continually really failed to exploit the true potential that Peter had unlocked with that um, with that statement, and mm. um, and I think you mean in its choice of sort of building development over the last. Well, it, few it can years apply to anything. Yeah. You know, original modern is is is, is are, are you as a solicitor is your work original modern? Is are you as a broadcaster doing work that's original modern? Mm. Are you as a, uh, as a as a developer doing work that's original modern? And Peter, you know, very flatteringly said that what Urban Splash and what I was doing at the time in New Islington was original modern and. Uh, uh, Obviously, it predates Peter's work by some measure, but uh, yes, that was a, a, a badge of pride, you know, it, and, and it still sits on my shoulder. Mm. That, um, I, you know, are you original and modern? Um, so, uh, and, and also that fed into the international festival. So, through Alex Poots, who's, who's now gone on to. Uh, to run the culture shed in New York, who's poached by hmm. the city of New York because of his success in hmm. Manchester. But Peter got, there were six people on the interview panel, and Peter got the seventh person, which was Alex Poots. Don't think they knew each other particularly well, but Alex, Peter knew Alex of his, because of his reputation in work he'd done in London. And they had a conversation about original modern. And Alex, at interview, his interpretation of original modern for the international festival was that the original aspect should be that this is a commissioning festival it's not a receiving festival and it has to take risk so um, there were two things that he he made an essential part of his tenure 
at that interview. One was we have to commission new work, so it has to be original and it has to be modern. Hmm. And you have to give me complete editorial control. <coughs> and uh, I think by the time the second international festival, so four years after his appointment hmm. um, happened, it was apparent to the the world of art in its widest sense that something quite significant was happening under his um, his guidance yeah. uh, and all of that came from a conversation with Peter as many things do so these traces of, mm. of where the International Festival and the roots of the International Festival were are all linked back one way or another to factory records yeah. one way or another to uh, the the moment of the Sex Pistols in the Free Trade <laughs> Hall in 1976. Yeah, it all connects back to that one moment, yeah. and these are these are ripples. And just thinking about, in fact, you said that you know you in the early days they were your inspiration. People yeah. like Tony Wilson and Peter Saville. So what was it like ending up being effectively their peer? You know, later on, um, well, how satisfying was that? It, um, it was. They just it just kind of happened you know you become mates yeah uh, you, you understand that you understand each other um and respect each other's uh um ideas and opinions and conversation and that is a, it was a very natural um segue into that family if you like but did you feel like their peers or was it always that sort of feeling of well, they, it, were, they, inis- were, initially, know, they were initially yes initially it, it was that but i think that that very quickly disappears and then, yeah. then you don't see that they just become mates yeah um so um it, it was it it was very natural it, um and i think uh it was a because they were such um strong and intelligent people uh the city the it was the time i think when the city was at its most potent it was in that time sure sure the bands from the mid 80s and the summer of love and uh, the drugs that were taken at the hacienda mm. and the immediate aftermath of post-punk were mattered because they were an emergent music scene that was increasingly accessible to people around the world but that in isolation couldn't have affected the change that it had to assimilate into mm. a much deeper and richer um, discussion about uh, the impact that that could have in terms of regeneration on yeah. the city, and yeah. once that dialogue started to happen, once those people started to be um, uh, brought in to be part of the city, that's when the profound change started to take place. I guess that brings us on, uh, in some ways, to Urban Splash because you obviously were there. Well, you were part of that for a long time—fifteen years or so. Yeah, eighteen years. So how did years, that eighteen years? Mm. How did that get started how did you get involved in that in the first um, place i met I, I i was uh working with jim ramsbottom at the time in castlefield and a mate of mine from college called andy dainty uh introduced me to this guy called tom bloxham he said you've got to go and see tom because what he's doing in liverpool is you know he's a young guy um 
he's doing interesting things. What was he doing at that point? He just he, he wasn't actually doing interesting things. He'd, <laughs> he'd ripped off. He'd he'd, <laughs> he'd um, by chance had found himself taking over a lease in uh, what is now Flex Palace from Brunkwood Estates, yeah. uh, who were big property owners in Manchester, and uh, Tom had become. Uh, Tom's incredibly bright and whilst he was at college uh, wanted to make a few quid uh, he was at college in Manchester and he did what a lot of students did there which was um, start selling um, started selling records at, 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 fair, at student fairs mm. you know um, that were familiar used to happen in the union at that time and you, you know you'd have people selling all kinds of different things and uh, he'd be selling records, but he would also be gifted posters from the uh, record companies that promoted the records that were for sale. And uh, posters were free. Right. Uh, but Punter still wanted to buy these posters. So he was selling <laughs> posters that he was given for free. Right. And uh, so he started a poster business. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, then he started to be the person who rented out the students' union and then sublet it to all of his fellow students. So he right. became this poster seller, but also a landlord. Right. And realised that actually he was doing better out of renting it off to the uh, his fellow students than he was by selling the posters. Right. So he's very quick to understand the possibility of transfer. So yep. he took a lease on Affleck's Palace... On two floors, and then uh, put his poster shop in there, and sublet the rest of the space to um, other traders, and was making more money selling, sorry, r- renting out the space yeah. than he was selling from his poster business. So sure. he he was a history graduate, a history and politics graduate, with no property background, but he, he's very entrepreneurial, and you don't as soon as you see you making money, you suddenly think. Actually, that's quite a good way of doing it. So yeah. he'd gone to Liverpool and replicated Affleck's Arcade in some buildings that he was able to buy very cheaply in Bowl Street, Duke Street, around the quarter of Liverpool. And by the t- and he, at the time I went to see him, we had a bar and he had a bar and I went up to his office, not dissimilar from this humble chaos in <laughs> here, and he was uh, keeping an eye on the... Uh, the bartenders in Bar Bar because uh, there'd been some theft going on and so right. the CCTV cameras very early days were in just broadcasting back into his office <laughs> it was there, and met Tom and we had a conversation and uh, the one thing with, with Tom throughout his life is he's incredibly loyal to the people who uh, he first meets a lot of a lot of friends he's have been around him uh, f- for uh, 30, 35 years do you know what I mean um, and so we started a conversation and really uh, that only ended in for me that relationship business relationship ended we're still great mates in 2011 hmm. so uh, I was able to get him do what I did for Jim Ramsbottom which was get him grant money for uh, um, a project in Liverpool called Concert Square um, and that was the in the days when we used to go and buy 
18 kitchens from Ikea. You know, we used to... We did everything on the cheap, and it was a beautiful, naive period that, uh, of of property development when mm. you were doing that. You'd buy 18 kitchens from Ikea, and still there would only be enough components to build one in total... <laughs> because everything would still be missing. Uh, so the Concert Square was the first, then with Tom Flickflack between Manchester and Liverpool, uh, we ended up buying the old Affleck and Brown department store on um, Oldham Street next to Affleck's Arcade. Yeah. Um, and in those days, we were buying buildings... Uh, in, in Tom's mind, if it was cheaper than carpet, then it was a good deal. Um, and at half a million pounds for 300,000 square feet, it was cheaper than carpet. So really? it was a Is good that deal. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and that was the rule of thumb? Yeah. Just grab it and then... Well, if it's cheaper than carpet, it's got to be a good buy. Yeah. <laughs> that is a good... I like that. I like that. Simple. Yeah. Uh, so we bought it. We got... Um, there was a... a an, an organisation the grant giving authority bodies change from the development corporations through to English partnerships uh, and English partnerships are then to become the Homes and Communities Agency but mm. uh, they just shifted to be this new organisation called English Partnerships had just started up and headed by a guy called David Taylor who was a big fan of Tom and the work we'd done um, and they're, um, they're, they were able to give grant support for major regeneration. So there was ste- the government was stepping up now. They'd, they'd had a taste of these grants with the development corporations and they were making more money available because they could see that the importance of uh, it was having on the change. And their, their um, <coughs> minimum approval uh, without referring it to government departments was three million quid so we put a grant application in for two million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine pounds um and that gave us the money to be able to do smithfield buildings so we converted that into 81 apartments loft apartments we called them and 30 retail units at ground and basement level which is still there and i stood the test of time and uh, roger stevenson was the architect um and uh it was one of the first major regeneration projects with contemporary apartments. Was that your first big project together? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. It was 1995 that started. So Urban Splash came out of a conversation in the pub. Yeah. Um, I wasn't ready to join in at that stage, so I remained a consultant um, on the on the edge of it for um, about uh, six years, really, hmm. um, because I wanted to do my own thing, and I was doing things with the city council in fact tom recites a funny story about how bernstein saying who was the chief executive of uh, manchester city council mm. saying uh, oh we we pay for nick four days a week and tom said well i pay for nick four days a week <laughs> uh so I, I was able to um get involved in projects <laughs> at, a, at a and i was doing work for english partnerships as well at the time as a consultant so i, I was involved in regeneration on all fronts at that stage um, and again it was an incredibly exciting time when we could do things very quickly mm. with, a, with little in, it, interference and hindrance um, and uh, again I was saying this in London yesterday that there are since when we started in the business of regeneration 
there would be three people in a room and we'd come to an agreement and we'd, be get, we'd get on with it and three weeks later the ball would be rolling three months later we'd be on site mm. um, when I left 30, 16, 17 years later there'd be 15, 16 people in that same room um, and it would take <clears throat> three months for the first thing to happen and perhaps yeah. three years before you started on site so the, the whole thing was being stretched by unnecessary interference mm. by people who really didn't need to be involved in the process and did that mean you had to be a bigger <coughs> company in many ways to, to actually be able to afford to spend all that yeah. time in the yeah, the undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Yeah. you couldn't do that as a, as a, a start-up even yeah. a start-up and also um, my point about it was that we weren't and haven't necessarily produced any better buildings or better outcomes um, as a result of all of that. No. Um, when I look back at some of the buildings that we produced in the very early days, I still think that those are some of the best buildings that we did. And that What was it about them that you make, makes you well, think they're the best? There was, a, there was a sense of naivety about it all. Uh, a delicious naivety. <laughs> um, and uh, passion and soul mm. and spirit um, that you kind of lose when you start to become part of the establishment um, and you're employing a load of people and you take yourself away from the cold face of actually getting stuff done so yeah. um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem with bigness um, and uh, so I, th I think that we lost the the um, sense of uh, being original particularly in the aftermath of the 2007-2008 crash hmm. um, and it was we were no longer really in control of our own destiny such that we ever were um, and it became very difficult to do interesting and challenging things because we would you know at that stage we'd spent the whole career um, defying gravity in the property world hmm. by doing these outrageous projects and making them commercially successful hmm. um, but uh, but gravity defiance ended in 2007 2008 yeah. and I, it was never to return sadly yeah I mean, was that a, a big part then of the whole urban splash project was that feeling of of being really ambitious and of being doing stuff that wasn't being done and it's the same principle yeah yeah because yeah, it was incredibly invigorating we yeah. were kings of the castle we were mm. we were we were lauded by architects the property industry we were seen as being at the complete vanguard of regeneration we were we were the rock stars of the property world mm. uh in everywhere outside of london we never you know we never we never went to london but um we were doing things that were um, profoundly challenging in a, in, a, in a responsible way you know we were working with existing communities we were rehousing people council tenants we were creating desirable apartments for people with uh, lots of disposable income so mm. we were <coughs> I always say that I'm, I'm n n not interested and I'm still not interested in mediocrity mm. mediocrity is our enemy and at Splash we, and, and, and what I'm doing now you, what's more important is balance and balance is about balancing things at either end of the spectrum so um, if you're doing something that is for the uh, for the 
uh, is it out of the reach for, for various reasons, culturally or, or monetarily, for somebody you, the other end of the spectrum, you do something that's easily accessible and, and affordable and um, approachable at the other end. And, and by doing that, you, you, you don't compromise. You Because what mediocrity results in is compromise in the middle. Mm. And in actual fact, what you need to achieve is balance. And the two things bring you to a midpoint, but uh, by a very different uh, set of um, objectives. And is that how you felt? I'm interested in the... I think is it 2011, 2012, where you you basically yeah, stopped. Renounced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you were you involved in marketing Manchester as well, yeah. weren't you? And then, but you stopped that. You stopped working uh, with Urban Splash. And yeah. And is that right that you sort of <coughs> cut that? Yeah. And start, let's yeah, start, not start again. But yeah. So why what, did you feel like it was becoming? It, it wasn't as exciting as yeah, it was. Yeah, it was Groundhog before. Day, you right. know. Um, and it, I made people laugh yesterday w- with all my old architectural chums. <laughs> uh, when I referred to my period of self-imposed exile from the built environment, um, because and th- th- that's interesting to them because you know very often you're on a career path and you lock yourself into something that yeah. you can't escape from. Yeah. When was that then? Do you mean this exile? Uh, that started in 2011. Okay. It was a okay. deliberate um, decision that I. A turbine splash. What we what had happened was that we bought some time because of our relationship with government in 2008 <clears throat> and I had a, a close working relationship with Sir Bob Kerslake who was the chief executive of the Homes and Communities Agency who went on to head up the civil service and uh, he and I would meet uh, alongside other prominent re- regeneration developers so First Base who was Elliot Lipton who was Stuart Lipton the developer's uh, son and Chris Brown from Igloo, uh, and these were all we were all big. We were the big three, if you like, mm. uh, regen, regeneration developers, all of whom were uh, staring at the abyss because of the fact that the money supply had been cut off. Yeah. So we would meet Bob on a regular basis uh, in a confessional to say we've got a real problem here, mm. and uh, he recognised that he. And the government recognised there was a need to support this thing known as regeneration because it was, it mattered, and they had to deal, do something to reverse the problems that we faced, which were access to money from the banks because the taps had been turned off because they themselves didn't have access to uh, to money. So they they created a, a scheme for which we had to bid called Kickstart, and so uh, I think that stayed in place for about <coughs> two or three years until the um, uh, coalition government took over. But developers were able to bid for money from government to restart projects that were part way through that hadn't had been killed by the fact that the taps have been turned off so mm. we had three big projects two big projects and one in a small one in Staley Bridge so one Lakeshore in Bristol one uh, Saxton in Leeds and um, one in Staley Bridge all of which received about £40 million pounds worth of money from um, government and that kept us alive because uh, we were able to finish off I think it was more than £40 million. Though we were able to finish off those projects <coughs> So, for example, in Lakeshore, HSBC had spent... We, we were halfway through, we'd spent 35 million quid. And it was still a building site with nobody working <laughs> on it. And so that 35 million pounds was worth zero. It mm. was worth nothing. So the bank were looking at, we've sunk 35 million quid into this, we can't give you another penny. But at the moment, 
we've got to write it off because it's yeah. worth nothing. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we restarted work without recourse to the bank for further money and finished it. So we turned it from, at the very least, £35 million worth of loss into <laughs> an asset that was worth whatever it was worth at mm. that point in time. So yeah. it was materially better for them. So the banks thought we pulled the rabbit out of a hat. We knew that we uh, had probably bought ourselves three years, so 2008 to 2012, 11, 12. And, uh, and if the ship still hadn't righted itself by then, we knew that we would still be in trouble and the ship hadn't righted itself. Yeah. Um, the property industry was still struggling in the doldrums. So um, it, it was... The problem was exacerbated by the fact that part of our debt was with uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland and part of that debt was sold mm. as part of a project called Project Isabel to Blackstone, who are a vulture capital fund from the United States, who bought what was called Project Isabel from the Royal Bank of Scotland. So we were bundled into £1.4 billion worth of distressed debt yeah. that was bought by Blackstone and they were working out it merchants so they worked out and we weren't top of the pecking list so it, we had 12 months before they came yeah. knocking at the door um so we were we were kind of we 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 were we were in we were in the twilight zone we weren't able to do anything new we had transferred what was work in progress to uh assets but there's still what those assets were worth was debatable because the market yeah for uh, we're still in doldrums because people weren't able to get mortgages so there was that's where this start the whole thing started to shift towards renting rather than uh, sale and I, I remember in the final stages of my time at Splash that there were um, things going on that we simply weren't in control of uh, between HSBC and Narby of S in the, twin, in the towers at Canary Wharf they weren't interested in us and what we did. They were no. just—they were holding bundles of debt, yeah. and they were fighting each other about. Well, I'll send them down, and you'll get nothing, and yeah. you know all that brinksmanship that we weren't involved in, or we were only involved in in the periphery. But there was a necessity to protect, particularly HSBC. So um, there was lots of work being done by lots of professionals, and I, we we paid millions of pounds in professional fees during that period of desolation uh, in 2011 and it was inappropriate you know these were guys all the major firms of accountants all the major firms of lawyers who ad advised us on the way up were also advising on the way down and mm -hmm. we're making fees out of it and I just thought and we were doing nothing different to what we'd always done yeah. actually we were doing really well in terms of the commercial letting side of the business and it was just I just thought I this is not what I came in hmm. to do. I didn't come in to shuffle stuff around in order to protect, uh, you know. Uh, so was people. it quite a quick decision, or, or did it sort of fester for it, a while? It, it had been biting over three years. I think we were yeah. quite kind of frustrated because we were always doing the next thing, and then you weren't yeah. able to do that. So yeah, sure. it's what, what, what you do, you know. I've, my lifetime spent in regeneration so I decided I didn't know what I wanted to do but I knew I didn't want to do that and I said to the guys who still remain best mates that look you know there's too many chiefs around the tab top table I'll happily if the package is right I'll I'll go so don't feel any um, concern if 
if, if we think if we all agree that and that was in the March and I'd left by the uh, November of 2011 right. uh, not knowing what I was going to do really mm. uh, but knowing that two things one um, that I needed to know less. Actually, I'd enjoyed, I'd enjoyed myself when I and had most impact when I was half my age, and I knew uh, a fraction of what I now know. Hmm. Um, because you were learning, is that? Or yeah, you were, you were doing things. Stuff? You were doing things that you didn't know what was around the corner. Yeah, and that's incredibly. Uh, it fills you with a lot of energy. That because once you know you can know too much yeah. and that's oh, I can't do that because this is going to happen and that's going to happen and I'm not going to do that again uh, but if you don't know what's around the corner you just have <laughs> yeah. to react yeah. um, and that's incredibly powerful and naivety is one of the greatest strengths in business I think um, particularly if, you, if, you're, if you're of the ilk where you want to start business uh, naivety is a important factor because if if you knew if you know too much, you, you simply don't have the energy to... Yeah, it's that sort of lack of it. cynicism, I guess, yeah. that you yeah. think, oh, no, that's never going to happen, I'm yeah. never going to try. Yeah. So that I, knew, I wanted to feel that again, because mm. I felt that at 25. And, and I, 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 in the final 10 years between 19... Sorry, 2001 and 2011, I'd become part of the establishment. You know, I was... I looked at my CV... I thought, fucking hell, that's impressive. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and you know I was the chairman of Marketing Manchester I was the sat in the local enterprise partnership I was a commissioner for the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment in London I was a visiting professor at, at Yale in uh, the States yeah. I, you know my email footer went on and on and on <laughs> uh, and it was a desperately disproportionate to the amount of impact that I was having Right. and I was just honest about it and I just thought, actually, I'm t- I'm sitting around talking to a load of people, having bright ideas, and it's getting precisely no- nowhere. You know, people say, "No, oh, that's a great idea," yeah. and that's where it ended. You know, it was lost, it was yeah. swallowed, it ceased to exist at that point. Yeah. So, um, I decided I'd read a, a read a piece. It's not a great exem- ex- um It's not a great person to reference now, given what's happened, but. Luke Johnson, uh, who has got <laughs> encountered problems with Patricia Valerie, oh, probably yeah. for the reasons that I'm about to state, but he wrote a piece in the Financial Times. Uh, I, I, I started reading the Financial Times during the property crash, just to try and understand a little bit more about what was going on. And yeah. I, I'd just come home one night and read a piece by Luke Johnson, and he said, look, I'm a really busy man. I have meetings back-to-back all through the day, I, you know, through the whole year. There's not a, you know, it's difficult to get a slot. And I looked at my diary and thought, asked myself how many of those meetings were important over the last uh, preceding year. And mm. his answer was four. <laughs> and I thought, actually, <laughs> you know what? He's yeah. bloody right that we, 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 we look busy. We purport to be busy. We have yeah. meetings that keep us busy. But in terms of our productivity, it is disproportionate okay. to that. So I decided that that stuck in my mind. And that, so I'd read that. And uh, I thought in 2011, you know, that he's right. I'm, so I'm, I'm going to renounce all my positions of authority, perceived authority. I, I don't. Want, I never wanted to become part of the establishment. I've become part of the establishment. I need to stop being part of it. Mm. <clears throat> I renounce positions of authority, perceived authority. I vowed that I would <clears throat> never join a board uh, again. 
and I vowed that I would never attend any meeting if there were more than three people plus myself present. Right. So if there is, if I do attend a meeting, it's got to be with three people or less. Okay. Um, have you stuck to that? Yeah. And I have become immeasurably more productive uh, since that point in time. Mm. So I literally will not um, be tied down to a, a meeting. And if it is, it's with the people who are really important. Because right. what tends to happen is you go to a meeting and Uncle Tom Cobbley and all attends. Yeah. And they all sit there on their devices and they're yeah. not really participants. But then they feel, because they've been invited to a meeting, they should volunteer something or stick a spanner in the works when it's unnecessary and, and hmm. uh, not needed. So I've had to do that. And um, I wanted to effect change... Uh, somehow uh, and demonstrate that I was still involved in regeneration and the opportunity came along uh, as a result of conversation with the <coughs> leader of the then the then leader of, of, of Trafford Council a very bright and progressive leader called Matt College um, and, and I have to say I'm both religiously and politically agnostic so I have no to grind mm. with anybody provided what they say is um, sensible and Matt was very sensible and uh, he'd asked me to join the board of Altering and Forward and I said no I'm, I'm sorry my time yep. of that is over yep. um, but I will write you something so I wrote him <coughs> a document that set out what the vision for this town might be because I realised that having changed other people's places over the years the town in which I live was most in need of change. Yeah, because the high street here really suffered, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, loads of closures and completely. Yeah, it was, it was the Altrium was again in the Daily Mail uh, as being one of the, um, the towns with the highest vacancy rates That's on right, the high yeah. street in the country. Yeah, um, and going back to Peter Savile, you know, what this place failed to do was really reflect the people that lived here. They didn't see themselves reflected in their town. That's how I felt about the place. Um, and obviously, it's a middle-class suburb of Manchester that's, that's probably more than middle-class because there's, there's a lot of wealth around here. Mm. The, 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 um, the infrastructure, the, the box of tricks that this place has at its disposal are tremendous. Incredible housing stock, albeit expensive. Uh, some fantastic schools it's 10 minutes from Manchester Airport it's got a train uh, station, it's mm. got a tram station um, you can be in London within 2 hours 15 minutes from here uh, on public transport you're on the edge of the Cheshire countryside, you can be 15 minutes walk from here and you're in um, Dunham, you know a National Trust estate yep. it's got so much going for it and yet the town itself was failing um, and uh, so Matt asked me, you know, he said, "Will you get involved? Given your background in regeneration?" And I said, "No, I won't, but I will write you something." And, and what I said again, pinching Peter's work, was, "This is the original market town. It's had its charter since 1290, <laughs> um, and what it needs to become is a modern market town." 
and uh, it needs at its heart therefore a modern market and I said to Matt it shouldn't be just a modern market it should be the modern market the modern market town the word the was subsequently lost by all so when you when you walk around the town now they've got modern market town the point was that this is the yeah. should be the modern market town, but, but the, the subtleties, of yeah, the subtleties of, of all of that were lost on the local <laughs> authority when Matt left. And um, he said to me, "Why don't you do it?" And this is one conversation over a beer, I think, in the Belgian bar. <clears throat> and I went back home and said to Jen, "Matt's just said to me, why don't we do it?" And she said to me, "Why don't we do it?" <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it's a glorious kind of journey in serendipity. I'm a great mm. believer in serendipity. And the opportunity arose. And serendipity is about seizing opportunities as it presents itself rather than engineering yeah. it. And um, had it been down to Matt and I, we would have been in here three weeks later. But, of course, uh, European protocols and um, compliance intervened. <laughs> And cost us 18 months and 135,000 quid in, right. order to, in order to get to the end of <laughs> the process where the the uh, the opportunity to operate altering a market was advertised in European journals for 52 consecutive dates. Anybody within Europe could have come in and uh, uh, operated this place. In fact, they had about five years ago, a group, a group, uh, an organisation called Group Giro had, mm. had done precisely that and lasted about six weeks or six months. Um, put some roller shutters up around to make the place more secure and then bug it off, basically. Right. And my point was that, actually, for this to happen, there needs to be a soul and somebody who cares passionately about the impact that this has... The, uh, or the potential that it has to impact on the wider town. Mm. Anyway, we managed to get through the European process and were selected as the preferred uh, bidder... Um, much to the frustration of the then chief executive, who really didn't want us um, because chief we were executive of, of Trafford, Trafford, who, who right. didn't want us in place because we were a risk. Yeah, um, and uh, they would rather have seen a Sedexo equivalent, where who could tick all the boxes, big sort of public service contractor yeah. type. Yeah. yeah, and we know what happens to them. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we know what has happened to the likes of Carillion and we know the levels of dissatisfaction that come out of mm. uh, of subcontracting council services to uh, those large businesses. Um, anyway, we managed to get through, somehow get through all of that process and by hook or by crook took over the market in 2013, um, by w- at which point Market House didn't, hadn't been refurbished. Mm. Uh, what so was that? Was anything actually happening in the market hall? Yeah, at that point? there was. It was. It was. The, the average age of the punter was <coughs> seventy. Right. The so it was a it, very sort of town market that still exists. Yeah, old old school. Old school it, yeah. it was cold. Uh, it had a horrible floor in it. Uh, there was uh, Dave who had a dog food stall that he'd had there for thirty-five years. A lot of the traders had been there a long time, mm. and you know they were charming, but. They they were they played no role in the town mm. either culturally or economically, um, or they did for a very specific s- segment yeah. of the market, which was people who were coming here as a as a social function, either to trade because it got them out of the house, yeah. or um, as a 
as a an older section of the population who, who treated it as, as a social um, um, <coughs> opportunity and, and they'd done so because it was habitual because they'd done it all over yeah. their lives and I was sensitive to that you know and, and we haven't displaced necessarily those people although some people might argue that we have because we've priced them out of spending time in here but when uh, you will know and, and people who come here will know that the the cross-section and age profile of the people that visit this place is goes from the newborn child and the nursing mother mm. through to the grandparent, you know, the 80-year-old person in a wheelchair. Mm. And that is what, you know, if I stand up and look down on the floor there, that is exactly what I see now. That yeah. There is, you know, there is, there is many white-haired uh, people as there are <laughs> young mothers sat around tables talking to each other. So yeah. um, we were able to engineer change and that was difficult because these people weren't pushed out but they saw that they didn't necessarily have a future and the people that were did, did they back resist here. or were they yeah critical? they did and we were you know i was public enemy number one for probably about 18 months by people shouting at me and uh, but i realized that we had to we had to be pretty tough yeah uh, in order to get through that process and it was difficult because um market traders are often a quite quite a militant lot that have quite a political sway locally um but we we just had we had we knew that this had the potential to have a profound impact on uh the town and in order to go through that and there are still you know there are still a number of the old traders that are still here you know mm. uh there's still Winnie's fantastic who sells bags on the corner uh, there's still the wool shop there's still uh, um, the, the two butchers shops there's still the fishmonger there's still the, the greengrocers you know so yeah. there are still a core of people who have a role to play and perform an important function mm. uh, but you know inevitably uh, Leon bless him who sold tabards and big knickers <laughs> didn't really have a future because no. that wasn't what people wanted to buy no. um, and uh, you know reluctantly came to the conclusion that it was time for him to uh, retire mm. so we, we managed that <coughs> and there was a tension in the, the early stages but um, and it's taken time for that to come around so mm. you know a lot of people now look at this and think wow this is fantastic success story um, but it's been a long time getting there and yeah. a lot of people have just seen it now uh, and don't understand uh, the issues that we've had to go through to get mm. to get that. And you mentioned you did this with your partner Jenny. Jen, mm. and also Mackie Mayer too, the, the yeah. big one in Manchester. How's that? Did she have a background in this before? No, uh, Jen used to cook uh, in Atlas, so she ran the bar uh, until 2000 when we sold it, and uh, she, like us all, is incredibly versatile. So mm. her background is in fashion. Um, Hence the overlocking machine yeah. to your left. <laughs> um, but we are incredibly versatile, and we all we do is bring uh, um, experience and common sense now to <coughs> the situations that present themselves. So, and how is that working together on these? We've always major worked projects? together. So, um, no, we we, we are. Um, in fact, there, I would say there are probably between twelve and fifteen couples. Uh, in business within 
um, our operation. Right. Uh, in kitchens, in uh, in the covered market, um, there's a lot of um, physical and working relationships, um, uh, gay and straight, that are um, where people support each other and, and mm. get on incredibly well. And th- that's what's really nice about this. It's it's, it's a way of working where your kids can come in, and because yeah. uh, you, you're not in an office environment, you're in a very social environment, and the kids can work in a coffee shop or they can help out on the stalls. Uh, they can be with mum and dad. Um, it, it's um, it, it's a very very relaxed way of mm. of making not a relax. It's not relaxed because it's hard work, but it it, it, it is. There are very few boundaries or barriers, and it you know it allows a lot of things to happen in perhaps slightly mm. unconventional ways. And when you think now, obviously the market's now it's lunchtime now. It's busy. In yeah. there, it's really busy in the the Mackie Mayor yeah. in the centre of Manchester, which is what four times as big as this. I think. Uh, no, it's twice as big as this. Twice so as big. Yeah, it's five hundred covers in. Uh, yeah. Mackie. And but then and you're looking at Macclesfield yeah. next. Yeah. And when you think back to that, you know, decision to renounce everything what five six years ago. Yeah. How do you reflect on that decision now? Uh, well, it was the most important decision that I ever took, I think. Um, I see what we are on now as an adventure. Um, and this has been the most... It's great because you know, I'm approaching my mid-50s and this has been the, um, the greatest adventure that I've been on. Uh, taking with me and working with people who are half my age and Jen's age um, you can't turn the clock back <coughs> on your physical age <coughs> excuse me but you can start to work with people who are half your age and probably have twice your energy <laughs> um, and make their life easy because that's our, that's our role we, we curate people critically that's what's important to all of this is the curation of people yeah. the respect for what people do the ability to identify um, inherent talent and to harness that and make their life easy because if we'd been in business in the early days and somebody came along to you and said tell you what we're going to do all the heavy lifting and we're going to make your life easy so you can get on with what you're really good at Mm. that would have been a complete godsend Um, and that's really what our role here is to do is to facilitate and make sure that their um, existence has made that a bit easier by our involvement mm. um, because there are so many people that stand in the way of enterprise in this country there are there are, um, there are so many people that are willing to uh, not make a decision or make a decision that um, makes your life more difficult in trying to do something that we've taken it upon ourselves to hold all of those people back and to um, make sure that these guys have the support where it's necessary so it's a very informal relationship it's not i wouldn't call it mentoring i wouldn't call it business support it's Mm. simply the fact that all of our interests are aligned we participate in these guys turnover so uh, the the busier they are the more money we make Mm. Uh, if they have a problem that prevents us them from trading whether that's a to do with uh, um HR issues with their personnel whether that's to do with uh, money issues whether that's to do with um, problems within their unit that mean that certain pieces of equipment don't work Mm. it's not their problem (laughs) it's a shared problem and that we have a fiscal imperative to resolve as quickly as possible so you don't need (coughs) contracts this is another leaf out of factory records book there are no 
contracts between anybody here. Really? It's just uh, an agreement based upon trust and the alignment of interests, because everybody understands that we're all headed in the um, same mm. direction. So no rental agreements, <coughs> nothing? No. Mm. no. Um, <coughs> and that, because my view is that uh, if somebody doesn't want to be here, they, we probably don't want them here. Um, and therefore it's far easier to move on without mm. paying some intermediary to unpick <laughs> something that they yeah. put us in in the first place. A legal document. That, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it's unnecessary. Uh, if everybody is, um, is is reasonable and responsible about mm. um, about their position in all of this. And, mm. you know, we are now uh, five years in and soon to be three projects, pretty big projects, uh, taking that philosophy forward. Mm. And... Um, it works, but it defies all industry norms once mm. again. Um, people still come in here, you know, this on one level is still a property deal, on another level is a it's a restaurant selling food to 10,000 customers a week. Mm. And you're getting people from the property industry and the restaurant industry coming in, scratching their heads, thinking, yeah. shit, that, that, that works, but how, why? They can see it works, and mm. now what we're seeing, as Tony Wilson uh, said, is we're seeing the bandwagon. Um, I can see the bandwagon. Yeah, it's coming up behind you now, isn't it? Yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it's starting to yeah, arrive I can in, see on it. the horizon. It's, it's, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's on the horizon. Yeah. Uh, people are riding it. Yeah. Um, that, and that isn't to say that we uh, won't continue to... Um, move forward because we're ambitious and we want to. We're enjoying ourselves. Uh, we're making money. We're pleasing people, um, and we are uh, largely the originators of of that which is now being copied elsewhere. Mm. Um, so I think always, when you start to find you are that people are copying what you do, if you're the original uh, and you have, they don't have the DNA. They don't have the source code. Yeah, um, they can come in and. Um, try to um, take elements of what they think it is that makes a place work, but they don't hmm. fully have the source code. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what we will see is a number of lucky likeies that don't quite hit the mark. Yeah. Um, they've come in here and thought, oh, that looks dead easy. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> it it's it's not as easy as it looks, like everything. Yeah. Just finally then as well, have you been able to, you know, you talked about knowing too much and wanting to be sort of naive again. Have you been able, to, do you feel, to, to put that experience somewhere so that you can have that feeling of, of with fresh eyes of, of, with these projects? Yeah, definitely, because we're always doing something new. Um, I think uh, we're at a stage now where... Um, I suppose we are afraid to fail. We weren't when we first started because we had nothing to lose, and, mm. and actually now we have. Uh, so it makes you slightly more cautious because you don't want to undermine uh, yeah. five years' worth of efforts trying yeah. to make something happen. Um, but having said that, we're always challenging ourselves we're very self-critical we're always trying new things in a way that um, means that if it doesn't work it doesn't matter mm -hmm. we're not all eggs in one basket now so we'll try something if it doesn't work you try something else or you stop doing it 
Um, so we're not afraid to fail on component parts, mm. but um, it's very important that we maintain the trust of the people who trust us, um, and we have that um, informal and indirect relationship with with, with the people uh, that enjoy spending time here mm. and also the important thing for me is to do what I did in 1991 which was I was sick of talking about curating places on the local enterprise partnership and it, you know, everybody would sit and say yeah great idea <laughs> um, this is an attempt to demonstrate what you can achieve by pulling people in curating them yeah. uh, making a whole series of subjective judgments about them uh, and their ability their talent and bringing them together <coughs> um, either under one roof as they are in Market House or on one site as they are at Altrincham mm-hmm. um, and making sure that they are all getting along together because the one thing that you can't afford is to have somebody who will upset the apple cart, some prima donna or somebody who has a different set of values. And they, yeah. they're very quickly... It's like the staff. They're very quickly weeded out. Um, and what, we, what, what we've been able to demonstrate, I think, m- more profoundly than, than anything else, uh, as well as pleasing people on a relatively superficial level here because people come back here based upon word of mouth because the quality of the food and the quality of the atmosphere and the experience that they enjoy here means that they want to tell their friends and that is more profound than anything else hmm. but but what we have demonstrated is that we've affected um, profound change in this place in this town in a way that people hadn't thought about before. People hadn't thought about how one could effect change through the curation of people and moving away from vanity real estate projects that I'd been involved in all of my life and borrowing large amounts of money from banks and doing it with as little amount of money as possible and demonstrating that actually there is a more profound and long-lasting impact that you can have Hmm. by adopting that approach and the fact that we are now being touted as an exemplar for uh, town centre change, turnaround towns uh, is testament to the fact that we've succeeded in that endeavour I think and I said this yesterday uh, to the Guardian that if if we are if we believe that tackling towns is an, is a, is the, is the next big agenda because um, I spent my life dealing with UK cities um, and in actual fact now the real opportunity and excitement I think exists in towns because they're struggling and there is a real opportunity for reinvention but if we're to do that uh, we need to have a an intelligent critical discussion uh, that involves local authorities that involves uh, the people in control and involved with the built environment uh, and we need to understand that we need a fundamentally different lexicon a new language a new set of thoughts if we are to tackle the issues and threats that 
present themselves and expo- explore and exploit the opportunities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the threat is online. Um, the, the, the threat is uh, relevance to um, to and of our towns, um, but also within those two threats lie. Uh, the opportunities to be the antidote to online and to be something uh, important that matters to people's everyday everyday existence Mm. Um, and uh, re-states civic pride, the pride in the place in which you live and um, also is rewarding it's part of um, part of your existence that is important that matters and I think that that's why people come here, they come here because they're with other people and they mm. enjoy the experience and um, that whole side of things you know it was on Radio 4 with Evan Davis talking about the experience economy but um, I think that people one thing that we will never uh, lack is a lust to spend time with other people mm. um, and if you can do that in an environment that's comfortable and you're being rewarded by the experience that you uh, receive uh, then uh, therein lies the foundation of the renaissance of towns but we have to be very clever and very articulate about um, how that's engineered and yeah. we need fresh thought and uh, we need um, uh, new impetus if that's to be the case yeah well, it's clear that it is a very much a shared experience for the for the people that work here and the, the people yeah. that come here so um I'd like to finish by asking you three questions that okay. I ask everybody. Yeah. So the first one is, do you have uh, like a daily routine? or sort of Absolutely not. I, I have no routine <laughs> other than my toilet habits. <laughs> uh, I have no... Deliberately, I hate routine. Right. Um, I have to have a bit of it. Yeah. But um, I remember at Splash, Tom's a great fan of routine. So we would have regular meetings booked up a year in advance right. uh, and they were all aspects of the business and they were and I for me that was Groundhog Day yeah. uh, we were finding ourselves <laughs> in the same room at the same time <laughs> at the same point in each month yeah. talking about the same kind of things and um, I it drives me utterly crazy I have, I have it's vital to me that, that I have no routine so do, and do you have a pretty free diary yeah completely day by day. I don't have meetings so yeah. I keep my uh, my actions and decisions are taken very much on the spur of the moment as, as to what's necessary if something's not necessary it can be left and it doesn't need to be attended to <laughs> um, so uh, I occasionally will will put something in the diary but very uh, very infrequently, if, if I can possibly avoid. Well, what about it. home? You've got four daughters, haven't you? Yeah, so you must have to have some routine at home, I guess. Well, not really, because our youngest daughter is severely disabled. Uh, she right. she's uh, twelve. Uh, she's the, and actually she's the one who presents the least problems. Right. Um, the eldest is eighteen, <laughs> uh, and is at university. And the uh, the other two are about to start GCSEs in the year below that. Um, she can't have routine uh, with the opposite with with a disabled and as an only child I found it very difficult to adapt to chaos because Mm. actually when you ain't got brothers and sisters and um, you've only got your mum running around looking after you and wiping your bum and washing (laughs) your clothes that um, that that chaos I found difficult to um, 
adapt to but I always wanted for some reason I always wanted five kids I never right. quite got there it's probably because I don't like even numbers and <laughs> by the time we uh, understood that we had problems severe problems with Kit our youngest it mm. was difficult so um, chaos rules actually um, and managing chaos has ironically become one of our um, areas of expertise right <laughs> I'll just pick you up on something why do you not like even numbers uh, I don't know. <laughs> Does that translate they're too into... Because they're too conventional. Right, okay. Um, Does that translate into anything in here or the way that yeah, things operate? Yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's, you'll see there's things that are painted. So there's, there are three in one. Uh, the, 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 those um, straps that hold the building together. Oh, yeah. There are those dots on the wall. So there are yeah. three blue ones and one gold. Okay, yeah. Okay. So they're not... And there are, are there examples of that? Out, yeah, there's out? loads of things. If right. the, if, uh, things have got to be either random or or, or uneven. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know why. And odd numbers the, fit that rather than even... Even numbers feel more sort of... Conventional. Conve yeah. yeah, okay, I get you. Yeah, pairs and, you know, two <laughs> two kids and... So four's slightly... It's slightly frustrating that I've got four kids. <laughs> Does it bother you? No, you can't. <laughs> you can't. Fair enough. Now... Um, Second question then, what, when you look back over everything, is the one thing that you're sort of most proud of? You know, the one event or one decision or one project that you think, yeah, that was, that was as good as it got? Uh, they've all... Not really. I think in the early days, <coughs> in terms of regeneration, my crowning glory would have been New Islington in uh, Manchester. And had that been able to be executed as we intended... Uh, would have been uh, a significant project <coughs> to change the whole concept of what creating a new place of a city could be about. Um, and that was wouldn't have happened without Will Alsop, who sadly died this year. Uh, and also the ability, my desire to get Will in because we ran a comp competition and, and Will was the most provocative proposition <coughs> and, and least easy selection to make mm. but ultimately uh, was the person who had the most uh, profound um, impact on my thinking and, and that would have been my proudest moment but since, uh, and you know privately kids are unquestionably, without doubt, eclipse everything else. Mm. Um, but <clears throat> this journey, this adventure, uh, with not really knowing what we're doing, not, with, without true sense of um, of where we were necessarily headed, and a recognition that that is vitally important. Uh, this journey that we're on at the moment. Um, and what we've been able to achieve, and the number of people that we've uh, brought with us, you know, <coughs> from from the three disabled kids that are down there on the floor mm -hmm. today that are working um, <coughs> as waiting on staff, through to the, uh, the the entrepreneurial spirit of the kitchens and the, pe the independent businesses that we uh, uh, um, share our lives with, uh, to the public who make us their home. Mm. Um, this has been a very benevolent and I think um, generous um, uh, journey that has rewarded us and many others on a whole series of different levels hmm. financially 
culturally, spiritually, um, <clears throat> and in terms of the community. So I think I think this is a pretty rich uh, set of outcomes yeah. f- for not a lot of money. And just finally, um, in terms of sort of consuming <coughs> creative stuff, so this could be you know book, uh, the book you're reading or music you're listening to or something you're watching on telly or a film that you saw recently. What have you? What are you consuming, sort of creatively at the moment that you're really into? That you've, you just, yeah. What are you listening to or watching or reading at the moment? I d- there isn't. Um, I, <coughs> um, I p- pick up things as I'm walking around. So I suppose I'm very visually aware Hmm. Um, and I'm always interested in um, the unexpected so for example (coughs) I was in London with my daughter last on Tuesday night uh, and we were going to a restaurant and I said "Um, let's walk this way she said no we normally go this way I said no just let's go because we don't know what's down that road (laughs) <clears throat> from the hotel to the restaurant and as we walked down that road I walked into this arts bookshop and we had a great 15 minutes when there were some amazing books and she bought Secret Santa presents for her mates at art college and um, and they were playing music and so Shazam's my best <clears throat> friend because right. the great thing about this place is it's about food it's about people but it's also about the soundtrack that yep. we, we play sure. out and so um, I was able to shazam something that I thought was really interesting. And it, uh, it happened to be Young Fathers. It was a, a, a soundtrack of an album um, that I, before I set off to come and see you, I downloaded so that I could listen on my way down here. Yeah. And I suppose I'm not interested in one specific thing other than something that will either take my, catch my eye <coughs> or take my ear. Yeah. And take me in a different direction, so um, that will then allow the exploration of perhaps a different genre of music than I had been expecting, uh, and it will feed me into a world that is perhaps new to me, maybe not new to other people, but mm. new to me. And I suppose um, that's the thing I'm interested in the most is that voyage of discovery, that yeah. journey of unearthing things that you either read about or you listen to. I suppose I'm, I'm more than reading because I don't have an awful lot of time to read. It's more about an instant visual response to something or an aural response to oral response to <coughs> to a situation that will then f- find its way into the next project. So yeah. there, are, uh, <coughs> there are ideas that, that, that are constantly knocking around. So I don't... I can get passionate about a lot of things, but it's those those moments of serendipity that those three notes that suddenly mean that that sounds interesting. That that snatch of a glimpse of something from the corner of your eye that you, mm. it takes you in a direction <laughs> that you weren't expecting. And I think it's the freedom to allow yourself to. My family are always fed up because if I go to a new <laughs> city, I just kind of <laughs> throw myself into it to want to experience something that <coughs> is new yeah um and not to then <coughs> uh, 
copy that, but just to allow that to sit there in the back of my mind. And, yeah. uh, and, and I suppose that. So I suppose that's that's about creativity and innovation and origination and modernity. Um, and those are the things that I am into constantly. Original and modern. Yeah. <laughs> back to Peter. Yeah. Nick, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you. <laughs>